Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Five, four, three, two, one, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Oh, that looks beautiful, Samuel. It has a stark beauty all its own. It's uh, like much of the high desert of uh, the United States. It's uh, different, but it's very pretty out here. Hello once again and thank you for joining us on the podcast known as Space Nuts, a special edition. We're dedicating the whole uh, program today to Apollo 11. As this podcast uh, leaks out over the ether or the internet or wherever the heck it goes, uh, we will be uh, looking back 50 years uh, to the day when mankind kicked the moon. And as a part of that, we'll be looking at not only that particular event, but also uh, some of the things that uh, have come out of the Apollo missions. And joining me as always is one Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hey, Andrew. How are you doing? I am very well. I am very well. Good. Uh, Good. Good to have your company on this uh, special occasion. And uh, something I've been looking forward to, I know we've been sort of building up to this for quite some time, and I've seen uh, so many news reports and specials popping up on television and in um, in um, newspapers and on social media, and uh, all the conspiracy theorists are out in force at the moment, but we're not going to go there. But uh, I, I thought I'd start off with a music anecdote. I was watching a report yesterday on an Australian news network where they were looking at the anniversary of uh, the moon landing and the first step on the lunar surface, and the reporter said it was the first time mankind had set foot on another planet. There you go. <laughs> That's a promotion for the moon, is yeah, that? Yeah, sure is. Big promotion. <laughs> Huge promotion. We must be yeah. orbiting it, is what I... Glean <laughs> yeah. from that remark, but Maybe so. um, yeah, uh, it just sort of indicates perhaps a little bit of ignorance or maybe a bit of uh, misdirected creative license. But uh, it is certainly not a planet. And a few of us were talking about it at the radio station today, Fred, and uh, one of the things that came up was um, the fact that uh, since that moon landing, two generations of human beings have been born. And I thought, yeah, well, that makes sense. I've had children since then, and now one of those children has children. So yeah, there'd be two, maybe three generations in existence now that uh, weren't around when the moon landing happened, which is something to ponder. Uh, 50 years doesn't seem like a long time, but a lot can happen over that kind of time frame. <laughs> anyway, we're yeah. going to look at the mission itself as a, as, a, as a sort of a precursor to a couple of other things. We want to focus on uh, the legacy of the Apollo missions. One of the big, um, I suppose, arguments that seems to uh, centre around astronomy and space travel is what's in it for us, as in humankind. And, well, uh, the Apollo missions probably are a way of really 
defining what's in it for humanity. So that's what we're going to look at uh, look at today. We're going to focus on uh, what came out of it scientifically, uh, what came out of it technologically, and there are a few uh, what Fred has referred to as intangibles that might surprise you. We'll get to them a little later. But uh, the mission itself, Fred, um, one of the things that's come up is where were you? Uh, I was at home. I got sent home from school because I was a naughty boy. No, everybody got sent home to watch it on TV. Of course, in Australia, we saw it um, on the calendar the day after, I think it was, um, or something to that effect. But uh, it was about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, our time, you're referring to the, the moonwalk rather the moon than the walk. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, yes, you saw it in the afternoon on the yes. Sunday. Yeah. Uh, um, was it a Sunday? Well, it was. Sorry, I beg your pardon. It's Sunday this year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was. A, the, it was a school day, as I recall, when I when I saw it in 1969. Yes. And so we were all in the lounge room, crowded around our tiny little black and white television, uh, taking it all in. I'll never forget that moment. It's. Uh, I was seven years old, and it was. Um, it was astonishing. Mm. Where were you? Um, I think it was. I actually think it was a Monday. It could um, yeah, because I uh, I took the day off. So what happened? You see, I was in the UK, uh, and my job at that time was an optical physicist working for a company that built large astronomical telescopes. But in fact, the telescope I was working on was a small one. It had a mirror. Uh, 10 inches or 25 millimeters, uh, sorry, 25 centimeters in diameter, and it was going to fly on board a spacecraft called TD-1, uh, which eventually was launched in 1972. So I was working on this um, on this space mission uh, in this lab, uh, but all of us in the lab were completely fascinated by Apollo. We just wanted to be the Apollo astronauts. We didn't want to be working on boring things like robotic uh, ultraviolet cameras for <laughs> spacecraft. So um, it's uh, yeah, it was a very heady time. So the the um, launch itself was covered uh, on TV, uh, but the landing and the moonwalk, um, as I remember, I think it was a Sunday afternoon actually that that, that uh, this is our time in the UK, that the there was coverage of the landing, the touchdown on the moon, um, but then the BBC shut down everything because it was half past 12 in the morning and of course in britain you don't don't go beyond midnight um and so i had that to watch hilarious i had to watch a recording oh, dear. of the of the moonwalk the next morning i got up i think it was six thirty. i got up at, to, to watch it on tv but it was a recording by then of the moonwalk but yeah well, so, as I understand it, uh, Eastern Daylight Time in America, it was 10.56 p.m. when yeah. you stepped on the moon, which would have uh, put it later in the day for the UK and the next day for us in Australia. We, yeah, saw, it, right. we saw it on the Monday, but it was actually a Sunday, as I understand it. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, there we are. Um, and I, I'm sure a lot of people have been having this discussion about, you know, where were you? It was It was an incredible achievement. Uh, in terms of the, the, just the, the, the fact that they got there, um, the test mission of Apollo 8 to go out there and do a lap of the moon and go, oh, well, that's as close as we'll ever get, and fly home. Uh, and I think at Cape Canaveral at NASA now, they still have the control room set up for the Apollo 8 mission, and you can sit through a replication of the launch, which is exciting. 
Um, but it was Apollo 11 that captured the imagination of, uh, of the world with, um, with the first step on the moon. And I feel privileged to have met Buzz Aldrin and, and talked to him about it some years ago. And, um, you know, he, he, was, um, he was an amazing man. Uh, Neil Armstrong, of course, no longer with us. And uh, Michael Collins is uh, doing a lot of media as we speak um, in the uh, lead up to this uh, momentous anniversary. But, um, Fred, I, I think telling the story of the Apollo moon landing and, and the missions uh, is, is only part of it because uh, the, the, the planning and, and the, uh, the science and the technology that went into it uh, wasn't only beneficial for the missions, it was beneficial for humanity, as, as we're going to discuss. So uh, I suppose we can start off by focusing on the scientific legacy of the Apollo missions. Uh, indeed, which um, we still, you know, it's still cutting edge science is this. So what did uh, the six Apollo landings and the, you remember, so just just very briefly, um, we're celebrating Apollo 11. But the sequence of Apollo landings uh, culminated with Apollo 17, which landed in December 1971. Um, Apollo 13, of course, didn't make it uh, to the moon. They returned to Earth safely but didn't land on the moon. Which is really so, good because we wouldn't have seen all those Tom Hanks movies if they didn't get back. So, Apparently not. Yeah. So uh, that's right. Um, Twelve people walked on the moon uh, in those three years. Um, the first time anybody had ever set foot on another world, not another planet. Um, and, of course, that uh, Apollo 17 landing... Uh, in December 1971, that was the last time humans went below low Earth. Sorry, went beyond low Earth orbit. Um, we've we've done a lot in space since then with the space shuttle and the International Space Station, but uh, we've never ventured as a species be, beyond uh, low Earth orbit, apart from robotically. So we've done it, you know, um, vicariously with our robotic spacecraft, but we haven't done it physically. Um, so the science that came from it, um, the, the, the sum total, uh, 382 kilograms of lunar rock and soil, uh, something like 8,400 images taken on the lunar surface and many more from space as well. And all the scientific data that comes from, you know, that, that sort of venture. Um, the Apollo astronauts left seismometers behind to record moonquakes. Uh, which come from both the shrinkage of the lunar crust and from meteorite impacts. Um, those uh, seismometers, I think, worked for about seven years. I think they they faded away sort of towards the end of the 1970s. Uh, the, the other one, though, is the uh, the laser reflectors, which were left on the moon mm. surface. Yeah. Um, these are what are called corner cube reflectors. They're bits of optics that have the property that if you shine a beam of light in to them, it comes out in exactly the same direction as it went in, or the reverse of that direction. So it means if you, it doesn't matter what angle you set these things up at, and it doesn't matter sort of at what angle the beam comes in from Earth, because it's a, an, a, a laser beam coming from Earth that's used for this, it always goes back the same way as it came. And that lets us measure very accurately the distance to the moon, because you can time the flight of the laser beam, you, you make it a very short pulse, uh, it takes about 1.3 seconds to get to the moon and about the same to get back. 
Uh, but you can measure that very accurately, in fact, to picoseconds, uh, so that what you get is a measurement of the moon's distance to better than a centimeter, <laughs> or um, you know, two thirds of an inch uh, if you're if you're working in inches. So um, yeah, remarkable uh, accuracy, and it's because of that that we know that the Earth, uh, the moon, is receding from Earth at 3.82 centimeters per year. Um, that's because of a process called tidal friction. Uh, the moon gains energy, actually, from the Earth's rotation. Uh, and it responds to that by moving away. As, as you give energy to something in orbit around something else, it moves away from, from the primary. Yeah, my, um, my level of energy repulses my wife. It had not escaped my attention. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure that's not true, mm. Andrew. Um, now, we'll did get we, off did one we day. know about that drift before the Apollo missions? Uh, so that's a really good question. Um, I think it was uh, surmised, but uh, and, and in fact, um, there are measurements you can make uh, with optical telescopes, but I don't think it was anything like the kind of accuracy that we're talking about now. Um, the other thing is that as well as the moon moving away from us, this process of tidal friction slows down the rotation of the Earth. Mm. Uh, it actually slows down both bodies, but the moon is already slowed down, so it's already locked into facing us all the time. Um, the, the Earth is well on its way to that process uh, in the several tens of bi billions of years. One side of the Earth will always face the moon, but we're not there yet. So what, what happens is that the rotation of the Earth is slowing down slightly, and that's one of the reasons why every two or three years we put in a leap second into our calendar or our clocks, uh, either on the 31st of December or the 30th of June. Um, and that's to keep the atomic clocks of the world in sync with the rotation of the Earth because of uh, the fact that, you know, we now have atomic clocks that can detect that slowdown of the Earth's rotation. We've got lasers that can detect the moon drifting away. So it's all very neat and tidy. Uh, but to deal with it, we've got to stick in these these leap seconds. Yes. Uh, one of the other things that's come out of the Apollo missions is uh, learning of um, the relationship between the Earth and the Moon. I suppose we always wondered how it got there and why it is what it is, but uh, we, um, we've now been able to collect samples and do some comparative work. But uh, it also opened up a mystery as to why it is so. That, yes, that's right. So um, one of the popular theories in the early 20th century was that the Moon came from uh, the fact that early in its history the, the, the Earth was spinning so rapidly that centrifugal force you know, dislodged material from its equator which formed the moon. Uh, it doesn't work, uh, doesn't that theory, because we, we know from other, um, you know, other arguments that the, the Earth never rotated fast enough for that to happen. It would have had to go around once every two hours for that to, to take place, and it apparently never went round faster than once every four hours. So it was whizzing round, but not fast enough for it to be just centrifugal force. So since the 1960s, we've assumed that what happened was that the moon, sorry, the Earth was hit by a Mars-sized object um, in the early history of the solar system. We're so confident of this, we give it a name. We call it Thea, uh, or Tia. Uh, it's the mother of Selene in Greek mythology, mother of the moon. Uh, so this object hit the Earth probably within the first 100 million years, although that's been narrowed down a bit more recently. I'll explain in a minute. Um, 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 so you've, what you've got is this huge cloud of debris 
um, which surrounds the Earth uh, in a ring um, and, in fact, then condenses into a moon. Uh, last week, there was some observations reported from the ALMA uh, telescope, which is uh, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array in northern Atacama, near San Pedro de Atacama in Chile. I was there last week. Um, uh, the ALMA has detected a cloud of material around a planet which is orbiting another star. And that is thought to be a moon in the process of formation. It's the first time we've seen it. Uh, but we believe that happened in the case of our own moon, with this material from Tia, the colliding object, uh, coalescing uh, into uh, you know, the present-day moon. The problem with that model is that um, there is something called the oxygen isotope ratio, uh, which is a, a detail of chemical analysis, um, but it turns out that all bodies in the solar system have got different optical, sorry, different oxygen isotope ratios. Um, but the moon and the Earth, and we know this from Apollo, have exactly the same. Uh, and what that suggests is that the moon actually came from material from the Earth, whereas the collision theory suggests that what you get is material from the colliding object rather yes, than which the... Which means that everything should be different. Yes, no, because not. there's only a 1% chance that Tia would have the same chemical mm. isotope composition as the Earth. So you've got a problem there, exactly as you mentioned. And a few people have tried, you know, different scenarios. If you, if you kind of fiddle the numbers a bit, you can make it work. But it was never very satisfactory because um, a collision happening at some random angle would always produce material that were made of the colliding object rather than the collide, the, the Earth itself. Until uh, two months ago, because in April this year, and you and I spoke about this on Space Nuts, but scientists in Japan and the United States uh, seem to have solved the problem because they've uh, they've done something which should have been pretty obvious, but really um, no, none of us thought of it before. If the collision happened early enough in the Earth's history, say within the first 50 million years, then the Earth was probably uh, was still covered by a magma ocean. It was a liquid uh, rock surface. It was so hot, you had this liquid um, ocean of material. And if you then take something solid, uh, and Thea was assumed to be solid, it's much cooler and much smaller, so it would have cooled much more rapidly and solidified more rapidly after its formation. That bangs into the Earth with its slushy uh, outer layers. And what you get in that circumstance is the material that formed the moon is actually made of Earth-like material, and it works really well. Um, it seems like a big step in our understanding of where the moon came from. So technically speaking, we are living on two planets. Uh, in a sense, that is true, because one came from the other. Um, it looks like in the models that these scientists have made, the, the material that was there gets sort of plummeted out of the out of the earth moon system and it, it's it's still a stream of debris but it's not captured by the earth it's actually uh, going faster than the earth's escape velocity so yeah um so we are we're a double planet um just going back to your comment right at the beginning that uh, somebody said it's the first time we stepped on a on another planet people have argued that the earth and moon is is should be regarded as a double planet rather than a planet and its satellite. And the argument is that the moon's orbit is always concave to the sun. I don't know whether you realise that, but no. as, as, as the Earth goes around the sun, it takes the moon with it. 
And so the, the moon's orbit uh, is always concave. It's always, um, you know, sort of um, n- never is it is it is it uh, um, convex to the sun. It's always concave to the sun. Mm. Uh, however, most people rubbish that argument because um, the real uh, the real test or the litmus for a double planet is if the barycenter, the centre of mass of the two, is actually outside both bodies. And that's the case uh, in Pluto and its moon Charon. Now, Pluto, of course, is a dwarf planet, but Pluto and Charon really are a pair of dwarf planets rather than rather than a, a dwarf planet and its satellite, because the barycenter, the centre of gravity, is outside the body of Pluto. Okay. In the case of the Earth and Moon, the barycenter is inside the body of the Earth. So we are definitely a planet and its satellite. Very good. All right. Um, we've got a lot to get through, so we will move on. But, um, yeah, it's been fascinating so far, talking about uh, the, the Apollo missions and, uh, and, and the moon and, and the legacy of those uh, Apollo missions. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, Express VPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined Express VPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, Do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, Now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, So protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Space nuts. Now, Fred, we uh, have spoken about uh, the scientific legacy of uh, the Apollo program. What about the technology? Now, I heard—I don't know if this is true or not—but I heard a, um, a, a little piece of information some years ago that suggested we would not have the microwave oven without Apollo. I'm not sure if that's true or if it's um, an urban myth, but um, could be. Could be. True. Well, yeah, the. So it is true that um, one of the things that Apollo pushed was the miniaturization of technology. I mean, it's a bit 
um, it seems a bit curious that the biggest rocket ever launched the should, Saturn V. Uh, yeah, the Saturn V should should actually um, you know should should spur a miniaturization, but they did. They had to make everything smaller, and it may well be that the um, uh, the what are they called the the things that generate the microwaves. I've forgotten the name of it. That's ridiculous. Microwave the microwave. Um, no, the uh, the device that does it. There's ah. probably listeners there yelling out the name loudly at the moment, but I've forgotten what it's called. Uh, <laughs> and um, um, it's that device, which will come to me shortly, I'm sure, uh, was almost certainly miniaturized. They started their life actually in, in radar, uh, wartime radar, um, these these. Uh, emitters of microwaves. Uh, however, the probably the the most notable uh, path of miniaturization that we think about with Apollo is with computers, um, because at that time during the 60s, computers were starting to become, uh, you know, readily available. They were they were being built commercially. IBM and ICL and companies like that were building these machines. Um, when I went to uni in 1963, I did a course in computer science and we had a, an IBM machine in the computer lab, um, which I think weighed several tons. Uh, it had, uh, it, you know, it had its own electricity um, board uh, to, to, to break the circuits, its circuit breaker board. So it probably consumed uh, several kilowatts of power. And that was the best we had then. So that was at the beginning of the 60s. That probably dates from about 1960. By 1979, you've got the Apollo guidance computers, which were uh, very much the things that were being used on board the spacecraft. There were two of them, one in the command module, um, and, of course, that stayed in lunar orbit, and one in the, uh, the lunar lander, the LEM, the lunar excursion module. Mm. So by then, um, these things had come down to... Uh, a very lightweight, 32 kilograms. What's that? Uh, 70 pounds or something like that. Something 2.2. Like 2.2. I, I can never. I can never remember that conversion. Yeah. 2.2 2. 2 pounds per kilogram. Yeah. So it's about 70 pounds. And they also um, <laughs> consumed about 70 watts, which is the power taken up by a fairly bright light bulb of the old incandescent type. Yes, that's right. Uh, and that was state of the art. That was, you know, the, the, just what you needed for uh, for computing the orbital parameters. It, it was it was still pretty advanced stuff. Um, the back then. yeah, for back then. Uh, but of course, it was all in gobbledygook terminology. You had to type in uh, coordinates, and there was nothing like a, a like a, a tracker pad or a or a mouse or anything like that. It was all about just typing numbers in and getting numbers yeah, out. Through, through, it, I suppose the equivalent to a DOS system. Yeah, well, it's, it's far cruder than DOS. Yes, probably, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think that was well demonstrated in uh, the movie Apollo 13 where yes. they were trying to re-coordinate their position and, and achieve some sort of guidance and they were doing all the mathematics by pencil and paper Yeah, and yeah. Had, had to then... Um, you know, hand program the computers to to alter course, and it was just yes, that, yeah, that was right. that's what yeah. it came down to. Mm. Um, the, oh, were you thinking of a um, a cavity magnetron? Yes, yeah. Thank you very much. Just popped into my head. Yeah, a, I knew it ended in T R O N, but I couldn't remember what it was. It's via, a magnet via the internet. Via, via well done, Google. well done. Popping into your head. <laughs> yeah, as if. <laughs> yeah. 
Mm. So that that's right. They were probably miniaturized as well to the extent that you can. Um, but you know that uh, so that spurred on um, the first um, generation of um, sort of smaller computers. We used to use those uh, in the Schmidt Telescope when I worked there. We had uh, PDP computers, which were certainly not portable, uh, but they were smaller than those big mainframe machines that we had back in the early 60s. And then the move to personal computers, and of course now to this amalgam of telephone technology and computing, which we all carry in our pockets. Oh, yeah. uh, the estimate is that your average mobile phone, in terms of the number of instructions per second that it can carry out, is 120 million times faster than the Apollo computers. It's just staggering. Phone. It's staggering. Yeah. And, it, and it's happened in 50 years, less than 50, yeah. well, probably That's 40 years in real terms. But... Uh, yeah, the, the the thought that we are carrying around in our pockets devices that are, you know, that much more superior to something that helped people get to the moon is, yeah. is mind-boggling. It really yeah. is. And, <laughs> and you know, it, it, it's a testament to what was achieved uh, as far as the Apollo missions were concerned because this was the catalyst for change. This was one of the things that led humanity down that technological path that we all take for granted now in many, many countries. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, I think that's a fair comment. And, and, of course, there are other fields as well. Um, without going into too much detail, for example, uh, high, uh, fuel cells were perfected for Apollo. These are things that take hydrogen and oxygen and combine them electrolytically to produce power and water. Um, and in fact, I think it was, uh, if I remember rightly, it was an explosion in a fuel cell that led to the Apollo 13 mission abort. Um, I think that's what caused it. I can't remember. I never saw the movie, by the way. Oh, Andrew, right. I, should, I should watch it sometime. <laughs> I, I think you'd enjoy it. You'd probably have a bit of cringe factor because it's such a complicated story. They had to take a lot of shortcuts. So yeah, I'm sure they would. A, yes, few things, a few things are probably not as well detailed or a creative <laughs> license went into just so oh, we'll just do that, just get that thing done. Uh, yeah. I, th I thought, if I recall what they said in the movie, it was um, rotating the oxygen tanks that might have caused the explosion. Maybe. Maybe. But I, I, I can't remember. But, but that, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Don't know. But but fuel cells now, uh, you know, they're at a much higher level of uh, sophistication than they were back in the days of Apollo. And um, they've got a bright future. Certainly um, uh, our chief scientist, Australia's chief scientist, Alan Finkel, whose office is just along the corridor from me when I'm sitting in Canberra, um, he uh, is a great champion for hydrogen fuel. For cars, and the way you turn that fuel into energy is not by burning it, but by putting it through a fuel cell, um, so that you you get power and water out the other end, uh, hydrogen and oxygen. So he sees a bright future for hydrogen power, and uh, is a very strong advocate for that. As a uh, side then, note, I got a survey the other day from a car company. I bought a car from them three years ago, four years ago, and I, I sold it. Um, not long after, to be honest, but um, they still survey me about how the car's going, and I keep saying I don't own it. But uh, one of the questions in the survey was, in future, perhaps uh, when you buy your next car, will you buy a fuel, a diesel, a full electric, a hybrid, or a hydrogen-powered vehicle? There you go, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, which aren't available in Australia as far as I'm aware. No, aware. they're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's the, the correct answer, but, yes, they're not available. Yeah. So there's, um, there's a lot to um, sort of look at technologically speaking, yes. 
in terms of what indeed that's from right Apollo and just you know um, looking at the big picture stuff the the, the the rocket science itself has changed since Apollo. I mean, as I said, Apollo is, was the the Saturn V was the biggest launch vehicle ever produced. It's that's ever left the Earth, 110 meters tall with the, all the you know the gubbins for Apollo on top. Um, but uh, we're well on the way to uh, spacecraft or launch vehicles of of comparable power, but which will be much cheaper. And you've got to give people like Elon Musk credit for that for his. Uh, his reusable boosters that's you know you and i've uh, waxed mm. lyrical about this several times um that it, it it brings down the cost by a, probably a factor of 10. uh so you know eventually what now costs two thousand uh, twenty thousand kilograms to put to to, to to go into orbit will come down to two thousand kilograms per launch something like two sorry two thousand dollars per kilogram uh, currently $20,000 per kilogram, but will come down that mm. uh, factor. Um, and, and in general, I suppose, uh, the amount of use that's now made of, of space compared with what it was like in the Apollo era, there were a lot of scientific satellites, there were a lot of military satellites, there were a few communication satellites in the Apollo era. Uh, but uh, look at where we are now. Um, there are something like 5,000 satellites in orbit around the planet. About 3,000 of them are defunct. Uh, so there's something like 2,000 operational ones. Um, a statistic that I noted recently and, and hadn't realized was that last year, 2018, on average, there was one satellite launch per day. Wow. I think it was 380-something for the year. So it was about one per day. Uh, but, of course, there's all the debris as well. Um, something like half a million bits of space junk up there, uh, larger than a coin. Uh, most of that's tracked so that you know to move the International Space Station out of the way, one of, one of these bits is going to whiz by. Um, I, I, I think, um, you know, it made me think about this. I suspect that's one of the less welcome legacies of Apollo is what we've done to our environment in space. We've yeah. really cluttered it up. Mm. And, of course, and, the, the, the deep space network. Yeah, the Deep Space Network, that's right, I was going to highlight that too, because we, you know, that's something we take for granted in terms of the way the data come back from the robotic space probes. Uh, this Deep Space Network of uh, of dishes, um, the, the three main ones are at, um, uh, at uh, Goldstone in the USA, uh, it's in California, uh, the European one's near Madrid. Uh, that's a well-established uh, station, goes back to the Apollo era, and of course, um, what is now Tidbinbilla, but was Honeysuckle Creek, uh, where the first images of the of the of Neil Armstrong's moonwalk came through, uh, and Parks, which took over soon after that. Mm. Uh, Tidbinbilla now uh, has the function Tidbinbilla just outside Canberra of being NASA's deep space network station in Australia. Although I think Parks gets roped in it still from time to time. Yes, indeed. But uh, so much that came out of uh, the Apollo missions. Uh, scientifically, so um, yeah. Uh, if you're listening to us via your smart device, you know um, that's that's one of the legacies of uh, of Apollo uh, and uh, something we we all love so much these days and cannot live without. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson, a special edition looking back at Apollo 11 50 years on. 
Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, we're going to look at uh, what we call the intangible legacy. Uh, science and technology would be obvious uh, things to discuss out of the Apollo um, program. But the intangible. Now, one of the things you're about to talk about blows my mind and I think a lot of people will be quite astonished by it. Uh, we might as well start on that very point. Yes, you mean the the idea that perhaps the Apollo missions have averted World War Three. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Mm. Um, look, at the beginning of the 60s, uh, this is the Khrushchev area, uh, sorry, era in the Soviet Union. Uh, relationships between these two superpowers were not good, and there were a number of very near misses. The Bay of Pigs comes to mind and things of that sort. These were in the very early 60s. Yeah. Um, they were sort of bristling at one another uh, in a very ugly way. And actually, I remember, you know, I lived through all that. It was pretty scary from time to time. In fact, I lived... Uh, during the uh, Apollo era, I lived uh, right next door. I was at university, right next door to an RAF base, Royal Air Force base. And they had uh, fighters which were ready at the end of the runway uh, to scramble in case of, uh, of, of a, a marauding Russian bomber coming into British airspace. And they, they scrambled about once a week Gosh. Uh, because the, 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 you know, the Soviet Union was probing all the time, the defences, just to check everything was all right. I, I, I used to speak to a lot of the pilots uh, and their um, support staff. And apparently some of these encounters were quite friendly. You know, the Russian crews would be uh, waving through the windows at the lightning <laughs> jet fighter pilots and uh, <laughs> oh, the lightning that is a beautiful aircraft I yeah it was a model it was, of it as a kid gee i love that plane. Yeah, they were. anyway um look it was very much a real threat and mm. he lived under that shadow during the particularly during the 60s well even when i was in high school in the 70s fred we grew up with the same fears that yes, was the number right. one concern amongst uh, young people in the 70s was nuclear war nuclear war that's right so uh, in in some ways apollo might have acted as a safety valve for that and you and i've spoken about it before there was a there was a competing soviet uh, venture the project was called n1 and the n1 spacecraft or the launch vehicle looked a lot like the saturn 5 except it had slightly uh, bulbous uh, first stage because they used spherical fuel tanks rather than um, rather than uh, cylindrical ones. Uh, but the N1, sadly for the Russians, it didn't. It, it never succeeded, probably because it was a bit technically advanced. They, whereas the Saturn V, uh, the first stage had five gigantic rocket motors doing the business and burning 13 tons of fuel per second, uh, the N1 had 30. Uh, first stage rockets, which were a bit more technologically advanced than the, uh, I think they were the F1 engines, the Rocketdyne F1 engines that were on Saturn V. Uh, but the the Russian ones, um, whilst they were more advanced, they never managed to harness them all to work simultaneously because of vibrations probably that were set up in the frame of the spacecraft when you blasted all these 30 engines off at once. So the four, I think there were four test launches um, which none of which succeeded. They, none of them were, were occupied by humans, so they were all you know, trials. So that kind of took a little bit of the, you know, the, the tension out of the Cold War. Um, and just maybe Apollo actually prevented something really horrible from happening. Yeah, maybe. It, it was also the cost factor too, wasn't there? 
That's right, yes. So while Apollo was running uh, at its height, uh, it, it was using up 4% of the, you know, the, the national budget, the federal budget in, uh, in the United States. Uh, for about the last decade, NASA has been about half a percent. So that just shows, you know, it was a factor of eight more than, than it is now, mm. uh, just to get the project running and to get it going. Um, Which would yes, have made uh, it hard to finance a war. <laughs> well, it took, yes, it, it took, I mean, the problem was that in the end, it was a war that actually, to some extent, uh, helped to shut down the Apollo projects because that because the US got involved in Vietnam. That's true. Uh, you know, it was once again, it was, and I suppose you could call that a proxy war with the Soviet Union. It was, uh, but it wasn't a world war. It was, you know, not one that was going to have nuclear missiles whizzing it all around the place. Mm. So just maybe the Apollo did divert some attention from that. But on a on a more um, perhaps benign or benevolent note, uh, it, Apollo changed the way we see ourselves as a species. Uh, because for the first time we could see the Earth as a planet uh, sitting there and see how fragile the environment is. Um, it was, uh, it, I mean, I remember this so well. Christmas Eve 1968, uh, Apollo 8 was in orbit around the moon. It was one of the trial missions before Apollo 11. Bill Anders, the, uh, the command module pilot, he took... Uh, his image of the Earthrise picture. So it's a picture of the Earth rising over the limb of the moon. And um, people have described that as the most influential environmental photograph ever taken because it just shows what we live on. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and it shows the the absolute thinness of our atmosphere, how much, how much there really isn't between us and deep space. space. That's right. There's 10 kilometres, basically. Yeah. Uh, by 10 kilometres high, you've, you're above 75% of the atmosphere, which yeah. is remarkable. Which, um, which, if you walked in a straight line, would only take you a few hours. The yeah, that's person. right. Not very far. No. That's right. It'd take you long to drive 10 kilometres. No. Well, <laughs> to be honest, I, when I play 18 holes of golf, I walk 10 kilometres. Yeah, well, I, seven miles for our. Yeah, uh, which is um, yeah, not far at all. Not mm. far. And I suppose, Andrew, that led uh, eventually, and some 20 years later, to the the famous pale blue dot image of our own planet, which was engineered by Carl Sagan, who was involved with the Voyager 1 mission. Voyager 1, of course, the one of the five spacecraft leaving the solar system altogether. It's now, I think it's something like 20 billion kilometres from, yes. uh, from, from the sun. Uh, but uh, in... 1990, St. Valentine's Day, 1990, I love the fact that he chose that. Mm. Uh, they turned the spacecraft around and pointed it back towards the inner solar system and took an image which shows the pale blue dot of our planet. It's got, um, it, it's an image that's uh, actually got some streaks on it, which come from uh, the fact that they were relatively close to the sun in the sky. Uh, and that's interference from the light of the sun. But nevertheless, a very clear image. Um, if I remember rightly, it's about a tenth of a pixel in size uh, on the Voyager 1 camera uh, of our own planet. And it was at that time about six billion kilometres away. Um, so um, Sagan was so inspired by that image that he actually wrote a book about it, Pale Blue Dot, uh, which includes um, words that I think have become, uh, you know, almost uh, 
almost biblical in their import. They're very, very well-known words. But um, I've got a quotation here, but I won't read it all out. I'll just read the beginning. But what he says is, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love. And he sort of goes on, you know, and, and it really brings home that, uh, yes, this pale blue dot is it, as far as we're concerned. Forget about colonizing Mars. Yep. Um, it's our pale blue dot, and we really need to look after it. And to some extent, I think that really, you know, kicked off the uh, what we see today as the environmental movement, which certainly wasn't there uh, back in the, uh, well, in the 50s anyway. It was just starting to get going in the 60s. And I think, uh, I think um, Bill Anders' uh, Christmas Eve image from Apollo 8 helped but it was certainly spurred on by Carl Sagan and his mm. pale blue dot. All a part of the legacy of Apollo. Indeed, Fred, indeed. Uh, I just want to finish off on um, what I heard about another photograph that Michael Collins took. Now, uh, and it sort of relates to what Carl Sagan's words reflected just then, but apparently, and I did look this up, uh, Michael Collins took a photo, uh, not dissimilar to the Earthrise photo, from um, the capsule, of Apollo 11. Yes, as he was yeah. orbiting the moon. So you've got the moon in the foreground, the Earth in the background, and they say it's – and uh, apparently within the um, um, photograph of the moon portion, um, the two astronauts are on the surface at that time. Yeah. They say it is the only photograph in human history that shows everyone who existed before and during humanity's uh, existence, except for one person, and that's the guy who took the photo. <laughs> took the photo, Michael yeah. Collins. So <laughs> he he apparently will go down in history as the only person ever to not be in a photograph of everybody else. Of everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's yeah. mind blowing in itself. Yeah, know, it's, it's, it's fairly yeah. anecdotal, but uh, I love that story. I love that story. It, yeah, it apparently it's almost had a... as good as Mr. Gorski. Oh, the Mr. Gorski story, yeah. No, we can't do that Which one. Which we can't explain, but <laughs> people will have to look that up for themselves. Yeah, I think um, Michael Collins actually had quite a good time on his own in the... In the uh, I understand it. I heard yeah. him in an interview only a um, few hours ago, in fact, yeah. uh, saying just that. Being, oh, I had my music and I had, <laughs> had a good time. And, yeah. <laughs> coffee, yes, coffee. Uh, Great it is a great story and it's a fabulous story. It's good that two of the three are still around. I'm, I'm sorry that Neil Armstrong didn't make it to the 50th, but uh, uh, yeah. he will always be remembered as the first human being to set foot on another world, um, i.e. not a planet. Uh, yes. But, yes. Um, but the day will come when someone else will step on another planet. I am certain of that. And Yeah. Oh, that, yeah. I hope that's you probably and I... not far off, really, yeah. in the scheme of things. Mm. I hope you and I are talking about it on Space Nuts as well. I hope so too. Fred, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for doing all that homework and putting all that together. I know you worked very hard on that and you've got a lot of media commitments uh, surrounding this uh, 50th anniversary. So thank you. It was uh, it was always it's always a great pleasure, but this one especially because this takes me right back to one of the great moments in my childhood that has been with me ever since, and I um I see that as uh, as probably a, a 
an influential part of my life and many people's lives, even if I was just an observer. It's just one of those keystone moments in, in humanity, I think, and it was just a great privilege to be able to witness it, even on an old black and white television. <laughs> yep, I agree with all of that, and uh, you, you're absolutely right. That's the way I feel about it too. So it's a pleasure, Andrew. It's great to have the opportunity to have a conversation like this, and we'll get back to Earth next time, perhaps. Indeed. We'll catch you um, next time, Fred. Thank you very much. And from me, uh, thanks as always for listening to Space Nuts. Um, no questions this week because obviously we wanted to focus on this uh, particularly special event, but we'll be back to normal next time on Space Nuts. Oh, and good luck, Mr. Gorski. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Fights.com.